says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Remember, Jesus is talking right after he fed the 5,000, um, and then he goes over to uh, Capernaum. And after he did that, people come up to him. They're looking for more free food. And then afterwards, after all this happens, Jesus starts giving this, this discourse because he knows that the people are just looking for food. They're not actually looking to uh, seek him as Messiah. So it says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you give us insight into what you're speaking to your church, to your people. Lord, if there's some here that are, are unsure, if there's some people that maybe have grown up in the church or maybe have professed you at some point in time, but are just really not sure what it means to live the Christian life. I pray, Lord, that you show us what that means tonight. I pray, Lord, that you help us to make that full surrender, that full commitment, not out of obligation, but out of the sheer joy that it is to live in your light and to live in your goodness, to live in your plan, and to know that your purposes for us are good. So be with us now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has some difficult words here. Difficult words. So difficult that some people look at this text in terms of how Jesus talks about predestination, how you are chosen before you're even born. And some people look at that and have a really hard time with that. If I'm chosen before I'm born, then how do I have any control over what I do? Now, I believe we do have free will. I, do, I believe that we do have control. But in addition to that, God is in control of all things, which gives us some hope and some confidence. But I want to draw our attention to some of the words that Jesus says tonight by way of illustration. I want you to imagine with me. I want you to picture something with me. Let's say, I mean, everyone has been through Hurricane Sandy here. We've all seen the devastation that can happen when a storm takes full force. Let's say that you were at your house, and in your house is everything that you desire, everything that you love, your possessions. You know, you have everything stored on your computer. You have your family, let's say your loved ones, whoever you care about the most, they're in that house. Everything you value, all your money, all your life savings, everything is in this house. And let's say that another storm came, a super storm, so bad that it was flooding, destroying everything. So bad that you were kicked out of your house and you were tossed by the, the waves of the ocean and now you realize you're in a predicament. You're going to die, you're going to drown because these waves are so harsh, so bad. And all you can do is think about this house, how everything you've worked for, everything that you love, everything that you cherish is in that house. Now along comes a rescue worker. This rescue worker, you have no idea who this person is. You've never seen him before in your life. But you're in a desperate situation. You are drowning. And this person asks you, do you want to get out? Do you want to be saved? Kind of a silly question. But then you realize everything that you care about is in that house. And you have to, in a sense, give up everything, not just possessions. You're going to have to give up your loved ones too and entrust that they're going to make it out okay. 
What about my little sister? What about my, my father, my mother, my girlfriend? You're thinking about every single one in that house and all of a sudden you're helpless. You can't go back and save them because if you do, there's no guarantee that you're going to survive. And all of a sudden now you have to place your trust in a person you've never met before, but who says to you, I've got a better place for you. I've been working on this house. I've been preparing a mansion for you. If you only take hold of my hand, I will save you. I'll bring you out. Now here's the problem. If you're not willing to forsake all those things, you're going to view the rescue worker as an obstacle to your treasure, to what you really desire. If you're not willing to give up all the things that you love, the person who saves you will become your enemy. And you'll fight and you'll do whatever it takes so that you can die trying to save that treasure. Now, in a way, if you think about it, that's kind of like how our lives are. We have a lot of good things that we treasure, that we value. But you know what? Those things can't save us and we can't save it. Everything's going to perish one day. Everything's going to be destroyed at some point because nothing but God is eternal. And some of us have a hard time trusting in a God that we've never seen before, some, someone we've never experienced. He is like that rescue worker. How can I know that he loves me? Well, he died for you, didn't he? He, he came down to save you. So there's something that we can learn from this story. And the first one is that if you don't, um, if you don't enlist the help of this rescue worker, if you don't enlist the help of God, if you don't uh, see yourself in need of saving, you're going to view God as obstacle to your treasure. Secondly, salvation isn't giving up everything. Let me repeat that again. Salvation being saved is not giving up everything. Instead, it's recognizing the Savior and trusting him. You see, if all this person did, if all you did is just say, I'm going to get rid of everything. All right, I'm just going to let go of all my possessions in my house. You're still left drowning. You're still going to die. What you need is to be dragged to safety. You need someone to draw you out of the water. And that's what Jesus does. So even if you're not all the way there, even if you're not even like some of you are looking at the Christian life and you're like, that just seems way too hard. And David Goodsick says it is the hardest road, at, at least, uh, but not in, in compared to every other road. It's the hardest road, but not compared to every other road that there is. So there is some sacrifice. There is some giving up of yourself. But that's not what you're to focus on. You're just to focus on Jesus, the fact that you need saving. Say, Lord, I understand this is, this is going to be a hard road, but I'm trusting in you to get me out of the water. And trusting you with all of my loved ones. Trusting you with all my possessions. Trusting you with all of my treasure. Everything that, I've, that I value. You see, good things can be bad things if they keep you from the best things. Skip Heitzig once said that. And it's true. So looking at this text, believing that Jesus prepares a place for us, that he really does love us, the first thing we realize in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. You see, Jesus, the very purpose that he came to this earth is to save you. It'd be very strange if the rescue worker comes over and says, oh, I'm going to save you. Uh, you know what, on second thought, I don't want to save you. All right, see you later. And he just rows his boat away really messed up. The purpose of the rescue worker being there is to save you. Can you imagine a search party, you know, the Malaysian plane that just disappeared? Can you imagine we're searching for this plane, we find the crew and we're like, eh, we don't want to save you. But we just wanted to make sure you were there. 
Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus was on a rescue mission, not even by himself, by the Father who sent him into this world for you, every single person here. No matter what you look like, no matter what you've done, because sometimes we have two, two disqualifications we put on ourselves. We think that we're not able to come, number one. And number two, we think that God's going to reject us if we do come. We think we're not able to come because we think, wow, the path to righteousness, it just seems too hard. How can I ever get there? Doesn't that mean I'm going to have to give up everything? Like I said, it's recognizing that Jesus saves you. And by putting your belief, your trust in him, you're taking a leap in the dark. I don't know everything, but I know enough. I know I need to be saved. I'm trusting this guy. I don't know everything about Jesus, but I know that I should trust him. That's the difference between believing that and believing in. Believing that doesn't always have to happen. If you are in an alien country, and in this alien country, you see all these hostile aliens. They look like they're going to zap you, they're going to kill you. But one alien says, oh, I'm going to save you. You might not believe that he's really going to save you, but you can trust in him. You can believe in him. In the same way, you might not believe everything that there is about Christianity. You might have been hurt by Christians. Like, I don't even really know if this is all legit, but I'm willing to trust. I'm willing to take that step of faith and say, you know what? It's worth trying out. So it's worth asking. It's, it's worth praying the prayer, Lord, if you're out there, would you, would you make yourself real to me? And the Bible says, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. That's the truth of the gospel. So many of us doubt that we're able to come to God, but God draws those people. You see, it's not about what you do. God is putting you in that position so that you'd be near to him so that you could hear his voice. And if you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Don't, don't neglect it. If you hear God calling you to come to him, don't turn away your ear. And secondly, we doubt that we won't be turned away. But you realize it doesn't matter how filthy you feel. It doesn't matter how sinful you feel. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus, when he came down to this earth, he illustrated how much he cares about the outcasts. Many of you grew up in the church. Many of you know what lepers are. In that day and age, people that had leprosy uh, basically had this disease where it's not, it doesn't necessarily eat your flesh. It's just that you can't feel anything. So you go around and you put your hand in the fire, don't realize it. Pain is a good thing. It tells you when things are happening in your body that shouldn't be happening. But lepers can't feel anything, so they'll lose limbs, they'll lose all kinds of things, and it's severely contagious. So much so that these lepers would have to go all around the city, and within a couple, hundred, uh, couple uh, feet of these people, they'd have to shout out, unclean, unclean, and wear a bell around their neck, so that people knew to stay away from them. You realize there's only one person in history that tried to bridge that gap, and that's Christ Jesus. He was the only one who touched their leper because you weren't even allowed to touch them because you would become unclean by touching them. But Jesus, when he touches people, he doesn't become infected. Instead, people become healed. And so Jesus broke that barrier that everyone else had. They said, well, we can't touch those people. Those people are just unclean and they're going to they're gonna be contagious and they're going to get on all of us. We're all going to be sinful. We're all going to be diseased. But Jesus broke that barrier and reached those people. And he will do that with you today. You know, the Bible says, when Jesus said himself, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first in the kingdom of God. Some of us are afraid of not being picked on the team. You ever play sports, and then it's always the dreaded moment of who's going to get picked, and who's going to get picked last. Why, do you, why are you so afraid of being picked last? Because you feel like you don't have the qualifications, and you're kind of like the leftovers. And so some of us are so used to that, 
always being the leftovers, always being the last person, always being the person not invited to the party, not invited to the hangouts with all of our friends, just being invited because, well, I guess we probably should invite that person too. We should invite the little brother, the little sister, that friend that no one really wants, but you know what? We're good Christians and we're going to invite them anyway. And you figure maybe that's how God feels. Maybe he's like, well, I got to save the whole, I mean, I want to save those disciples, but I guess I'll save little Johnny too. No. And in fact, what we value the most, God doesn't look at very big. And what we value the least, God says, that's what I want. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. You don't have to look at your qualifications because it doesn't matter to God. Every single person is incapable. Every single person is drowning in the ocean. And only God is able to drag you out. So we can't base it on our effort. We can't say salvation is of my works and I'm going to work to be a good person. And, uh, well, that person's cursing. That person, you know, they're a little promiscuous. And I don't know about that person if they're really saved. Jesus says, you know what? Their heart is good because they want to fall after me. They don't have it all together yet, but they're willing to seek me. And all that comes to me, I will by no means cast out. What a glorious promise. And it gets better because it says in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Man, I was that guy who was afraid of being lost, <laughs> being forgotten. There was a class field trip we took to uh, Island Beach State, State Park back when I was a senior in high school, in public school. And in this one class, it was marine biology, and we were doing this whatever class. This is the first period, and I always slept in the first period. I didn't care. It was my senior year. I was like, whatever, just going to sleep this entire class. I didn't talk in that class. I just did not care. But it backfired on me because we go on a field trip. And I had to use the bathroom really bad. So I go use the bathroom. My teacher's like, all right, yeah, we'll wait for you. And then I get out. I look down the road, and the bus is leaving without me. And I was like, all right. It, was, it wasn't, like, busy. There was, like, no one around. So I just, and we didn't really have cell phones back then either. So I know it was only, like, 10 years ago, but we didn't have cell phones back then. So I'm just, like, looking around. I'm like, I was forgotten. And it's not like I knew, like, they were going to forget me forever. Like, eventually they, they did turn around. It was, like, 15 minutes later, they were like, oh, wait, we're missing somebody. And they come back, and I was scarred forever. But <laughs> I got over it. It's more the fact that no one realized that I was gone. But you see, Jesus says, none, none shall be lost that the Father gives to me. He cares so much about each and every one of us. It's not about your effort. You know, I went to Israel uh, last week. And while I'm there, what became so real to me is back in those days, the times of Jesus and even before Everyone had this view that gods were on the mountains and then common people were at the bottom. And that's why people worshipped and set up altars on the high places. And when you think of Greek mythology, where were all the gods? They were on Mount what? Olympus. Exactly. So they believed that all these gods were up in the clouds, up on these high places. And even in uh, early Judaism, what we would see is God was on Mount Sinai, and Moses went up, God the Ten Commandments, came down, his face was shining so much so that the people couldn't even bear to look at him. 
But you see, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about we haven't come to Mount Sinai where we're in fear, like, oh, we need to please the gods and we need to offer our sacrifices and we need to do all these things. We can now come to God at Mount Zion where there's no fear. We can have boldness coming to the throne of grace because God himself came down from the mountain to meet with us. Jesus Christ came to our world, became one of us, something unthinkable to these Jewish people, became one of us. And that's why they couldn't even receive it. Like in in verse um, 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? You see, they tried to discredit Jesus based on the fact that they knew him. Like, we grew up with this guy. And he says, I have come down from heaven. We know where you came from. You came from that little town in Nazareth. Nazareth, by the way, I went there. There's about 20 families in Nazareth. So when they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's literally because there's nothing there. There's like a couple cliffs, a couple mountains. But who would expect the Savior of the world to come from this small, insignificant town? And some of us look at our, same, our lives the same way. Well, my life is insignificant. I don't really have any talents. I don't have any gifts. What do I have to offer God? And he says, you have yourself, and I made you for a purpose. That's enough. Don't say I, you, I, that I, the God of the universe, can't use you. Are you kidding me? If I made you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, designed, purposed. It's not like God put up all the talents on a couple people, and then the rest of them, he was just like, oh, man, well, I guess you can have the gift of uh, compassion. Um, I don't know. What do you, you like to listen to people complain about their lives? I guess I can give you that gift. No, God has a purpose for each and every one of you. And in fact, the members that we think are the, the most important aren't that, that special. You can live without an arm. You can live without a foot. Can you live without your liver? No. The members of the body you can't see are sometimes the most important. It's the same way. Don't neglect the gift of prayer. Don't neglect the fact that you care about people because there are people in this world that are dying and need saving. And some of the people that are preaching like myself, we look at it like, oh, well, that person, Alan's being used. He, he has it made because he's, you know, he found his gift or whatever, his calling. Don't neglect the fact that God has made you and has a calling for you. You know, I just... I'm more visible, but that means I'm less important. But you guys, the ones that are praying behind the scenes, the ones that trust in the Lord with what, what's given to you, as uh, Brian Higgins taught last week, those are the ones that God looks out upon and will raise them up. Looking at this, though, how salvation is not based on our effort, we have to ask ourselves a question. If God says that he's not going to lose anyone, well... What about those that do backslide? What about those that do fall away from Jesus? How can we really know if we're really saved? Um, It's important to know, first of all, if you are really saved, if you're really God's, you will make it to the end. Because that's what he says. I'm I'm not going to lose any of them. I'm going to raise them up at the last day. The day I come back, I'm going to raise them up too. They'll make it with me to heaven. So then, if a person does fall away to a point that they completely reject Jesus, either they never really accepted Jesus in their heart, or at some point in their life, God will draw them back to himself. Here's the difficulty, though, because then you look at that, and you're like, well, then how do I really even know that I'm saved? 
Well, let me ask you this. Do you have the Holy Spirit within you? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit within me? Good question. Glad you asked. We'll save that for a different Bible study. No, I'll tell you right now. One of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life is the fact that you feel terrible when you sin. And not just because you're afraid of getting caught, but because you know there's really something wrong about it and you're hurting someone that you love, which is God. If the Holy Spirit is living inside of your heart, you're not sinning against law, you're sinning against love. Pastor Lloyd did a great Bible study on this on Wednesday nights through the uh, book of Romans, if you want to look it up online. But you're sinning against love. It's, it's like when you get married, it's not like, all right, I'm married, now I can go cheat on her. No, you wouldn't think that. Because now you're, it's not about what you, you have to do or what limits you have to stay in. It's, I love this person, how could I ever hurt this person? Now, the other thing is, some of us will be in that place of sin. You find yourself easily entrapped by it all the time. You always return to that sin, and you feel so guilty, and you wonder, will I ever make it out of this? Well, it's really important to, to realize this one thing. If you're a person that recognizes your sin, and you realize that you are hurting the Lord, and you hate about yourself, but you just can't seem to get out of it, realize this. There's something called unfruitful humility. It's the person that looks at themselves and says, I don't know if I'll ever get out of it. I don't know if I'll ever get out of my sin. I don't know. It's just so hard. It's because you're really discouraged. But realize, if the Holy Spirit is within you, causing you to feel that guilt, causing you to feel that pain, that is a good signal. That is a guarantee that God will bring you out of it. Your free will comes into play with how soon do you want it to happen? How soon do you want to get out of your sin? How soon do you want to get out of the mire? And it's just dependent on whether or not, not if you try really hard and get yourself out of the rut, it's will you place your trust in Jesus to bring you out? And the minute you recognize him, you know, you might be in a rut of, I just can't concentrate when I study the Bible. I, I just can't pray anymore. I can't, you know, do these things or I keep sinning in this way or that way. You stop doing that the minute you start trusting in Jesus. And if you haven't done that to this point, it's because you trust in yourself. That's really what it comes down to. If you have not yet found deliverance, it's because you're putting all of your trust in your efforts. But if you look inward at the Holy Spirit and you say, Lord, you know what? I'm stuck here. Could you bring me out? I can guarantee you that God will bring you out. You know why? Because it says here. He says, he who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And he will raise you up to the last day. He won't lose you. He hasn't forgotten about you. And I think that's a word that many of us have to hear. As in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, if you have that desire to come back to God, that is God working in you to will and also to do. So if you have the will, now the question is, will you do? And that is dependent on whether you're trusting God to drag you out of that ocean, drag you out of that storm. So we saw in verse 41 and 42 how people are starting to discredit. Look at verse 43. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so these people are, are discrediting Jesus. They're trying to like... Say, well, who do you think you are, Jesus? I mean, really. You grew up and we've known you for 30 years and you're going to try to tell us that you're coming down from heaven 
That's just silly. And we've talked about this in previous studies, but many people will try to discredit what God has done in your life by attacking your character. You say that you're a Christian. Now, I know who you really are. Man, you're the guy that did drugs with us. You're the man that was at the parties and drinking with us. We know who you really are. But realize the same thing happened to Jesus. People are trying to discredit his, his, his Godhead based on what he appeared to be. But it's not true. John chapter 15, verse 18 through 19 says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, if people are hating on you, that's a good sign because they hated Jesus first. Instead, the Bible does say, beware if everyone around you is speaking well of you. If everyone's saying, oh man, you're such a great person. I just love being around you. You need to have a couple people hate on you if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. Because you're going to do some things that shines light on the areas that they don't want light. They're going to hate it. They're going to hate when the darkness is exposed. Identity, in other words, isn't what people say about you. So don't worry about how people feel towards you. It's not about what people say about you. It's not even what you think about yourself. Your identity is based on who God says you are. Nothing else. You don't have to have a high opinion of yourself to know that God loves you and to trust in that. Verse 44. I just want to repeat that again. It says, no, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. This text has really stumbled a couple people because that word draw doesn't just mean like wooing, like, uh, come on now, come on. No, it's, it means dragged in Greek. So because of that, some people go all the way and say, well, you're dragged uh, apart from your will and like God just chooses some people. It's called limited atonement. Don't let the word scare you. But people say like God selects a couple people to be saved and the rest he's just like, well, forget about you. I don't think that's true because I believe the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this entire text seems to imply that Jesus is saying, hey, you should come to me. I'm not going to cast you out if you come to me. The context of this is back in verse 30, when the people are saying, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And he, they, they say earlier in verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. The people are like, so what can we do? And God says, it's not about what you do, it's who you believe. It's not about works, it's your trust. And because he says that, now we get all the way down here. And he says, listen, you can work all you want. You're not going to get yourself out of the ocean. You can't rescue yourself from the storm. You literally need someone to drag you out. You see, sin is so terrible, so deceiving, and so hurtful that you will stay in your sin unless God brings you out. You are dead in your sins until God raises you back to life. You need a helper. You need someone to drag you out. It's a battle that we're living in. You know, I've seen so many of my own friends fall away from the Lord throughout my life. People I went to youth group with no longer walking with God. It is not by any means easy. Are you praying for one another? Are you watching each other? I'm just going to be blunt with you. The battle has already begun. It doesn't start when you leave high school. It starts right now. And there are people in this very room who might not be here next year. There are people that you're friends with, that you're watching, you're seeing things on social media, you're seeing things 
and you're hearing things and you're wondering, oh, maybe that person isn't doing okay. You know what? They probably aren't. Well, let's not be the person that judges them, but let's not be the person that says, oh, you know what? That, I saw what that person put on Facebook and I don't even really know if they're a Christian. Don't ever judge those people. Let's say, let's pray for that person. Let's be the church that goes out and reaches that person that's hurting. That says, you know what? We're all drowning and we need God to save us, to bring us out of this storm that we're in. Because you know what? Trials are so hard. It's so difficult. Some of the things that we're all dealing with, some of the things that our friends are dealing with are so difficult. The world is so harsh. The things that people say hurt so bad especially when you're in high school. Because you're trying to figure out who you are, aren't you? You're in high school, you don't know what you want to be when you grow up. And like a billion people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? So where do you want to go to college? I don't know. Because you're trying to figure it out. And so when people are constantly telling you you're worthless or you're valueless or you're never going to amount to anything, you really take that to heart because you don't even know if you can amount to anything. You don't know what the future holds. That's why it's so important to encourage one another, to be there for one another, to say, you know what, we're all drowning and we need Jesus to bring us out. And you know what, I've seen God work in the past and I'm pretty sure he's going to be faithful in the future as well. Let's continue on in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread which comes from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. All right. Kind of strange, right? So the Jewish people, they're kind of confused, and it gets more confusing by saying, and by the way, this is what I got right here. This is, this is food. And my blood, you're supposed to drink it. And like, all right, now we're a little weirded out. And you know what? People started to leave after that. What was Jesus talking about? You see, the people, when they were hearing this, they knew what he was saying. They didn't know everything about what he was saying. I mean, a little bit, some of it's mysterious, but they got the gist of it. And that's what was so hard to accept. Not necessarily hard to understand, but hard to accept. It was Jesus saying, I give my life for the life of the world. And you see, the Jewish people were not expecting a suffering Savior. All the prophecies about one that was going to deliver, deliver them, the Messiah, they were expecting to be a political Messiah. Going to come in, overthrow the Romans, going to like lead them in victory. They're going to hold him up on a throne and it was going to be awesome. So they're ready to like crown him king. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to give my life for, for, for the entire world, they're really confused. And like, well, this was not in the game plan. 
you're not supposed to die. But Jesus didn't give them what they, what they wanted. He offered what they needed. Instead of giving them a temporary kingdom, he was giving them an eternal kingdom. Instead of the temporary filling, he was offering them eternal filling. Some of us are looking for very minuscule things. And we'll say, if only I had blank. If only I had intellect like that person. If only I was as strong as that person or as cool as that person. We're, we're looking at such minuscule things in our life. We're always comparing ourselves to other people. You know, many of you know I go climbing a lot. And so something that someone said to me a long time ago reigns true. They say, you'll never be strong enough. You'll always be looking around and, and at who, whoever's better than you and always comparing yourself to other people. And you know, slowly I have gotten better and have competed more. And before you know it, I am getting some recognition from here and there. And, and I look around and I'm looking at people and I still look at myself like I'm very weak. Like I'm comparing myself to higher and higher people. There's a part of you, and maybe you found this true in sports or whatever. You're always comparing yourself to the person above and you're never satisfied where you're at. You see, the people of Israel, they weren't satisfied at all. Back when they were in the wilderness, they were, they were given manna all the time. Food from heaven. And they're like, man, I could really use some meat. And God says, oh, I'll give you meat. It's going to come out your nose. And they got some quail and they started hitting them and they cooked them and they started puking and they came out their nose. What they wanted wasn't what they needed. Jesus says, listen, you want manna. I mean, they were coming to Jesus in the first place because they saw what he did with the 5,000. And they're like, he might be the Messiah. Let's trick him into making him do this every single day. You know, Moses fed people for 40 years, and I know you gave us lunch yesterday, but let's see if you can do that for the next 40 years. She's like, I'm not going to be here for 40 years, lame people. I have better bread than what you were looking for. And here's the proof. Moses fed the people in the wilderness, and they're all dead. But the bread I give you will last forever. In verse 33, he says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There's a colloquialism that says you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And that's one of our takeaway points for tonight. Because if you eat healthy food, you're going to be healthy. If you eat junk food, you're going to be junky. You're going to be unhealthy. You ever watch Willy Wonka, like the original 70s one, and there's that girl Violet that has to have the three meal gum and she eats it and she's like oh it tastes like pumpkin pie and oh now it's blueberry pie and she starts blowing up and blowing up blowing up that's kind of like how sin is like you take it and it blows you up <laughs> that was a really bad analogy that's not what I meant to say what's really funny about that too is like there's a person around her and and they're like why did she eat the why did she eat the three-meal gum? And they're like, because she's a nitwit. And I was like, I want to say nitwit from now on. Anyway. Damn. Never using that analogy ever again because I have no idea why I used it. Let's bring it back to the Bible. You are what you eat. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life, right? And to a degree, some of us forget that. Some of us are looking only to the temporary because we think it's going to fill us. But realistically, can it fill you? No, there is no possible way. I talked to a person recently who hasn't been walking with the Lord by any means, but grew up in the church. And this person said to me something I thought was so profound. Went to church last Sunday for the first time. They've been in church in like two years. And something the preacher said to them, they completely disagreed with. And this is what they said. The 
The preacher said, sin leaves you with nothing. And they said, that is a lie. That is a complete lie. And on the surface, it sounds right. Like sin leaves you with nothing, of course. And they said this, if sin left you with nothing, it'd be great. You'd be fine. You can move on with your life. But the fact is, sin leaves you with everything but nothing. It's a world of hurt, a world of pain, a world of suffering. You see, sin makes you more empty. It's not the fact that it gives you nothing. It makes you nothing. But if you eat of the bread that God's giving you, you partake of the eternal things, you will never, ever regret it. So in verse 59... These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? The word understand actually means listen. So what he's saying is, like, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to its teaching? This is just hard to hear. Hard to accept. And you know what? The death of Jesus is hard. It's hard to accept. The fact that God would come down into our world, it's just so unbelievable. Why would God care about us? But he did, and he proved it 2,000 years ago. It's a very real thing. In verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? In other words, he's saying, like, like why would it be offensive if Jesus like, I'm going to heaven? And like, oh, I'm so offended. Like, what? Okay, the reason why he said that is because, remember, they were expecting a political Messiah. He's going to establish his reign. So by the fact of Jesus ascending to heaven, it felt like Jesus was leaving them. After all the things he did, he's not going to stay with us? What is this? But Jesus said, it's better that I leave. It's better that I should go because then I can send the helper. And that's a different study. But Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Not leaves you with nothing, but it doesn't accomplish anything if you work on yourself. Uh, of your own strength. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. That is really hard to understand. Because some of us look at that and like, Jesus knew the choice I would make even before I was born. Don't let that scare you. Let it give you confidence. And knowing if there's even a hint of you that wants to follow after God, that is seeking after God, God will make sure that you make it to the end. The question is, will you put your trust in him today or when you're on your deathbed? Will you waste your entire life, your high school years, your college years, everything, and you'll be on your deathbed and say, Jesus, I accept you as my savior and waste your life. It's almost like Satan wins at that time, at, at that point, isn't it? Or you're going to be a person that says, I'm willing to forsake all because I know it's worth it in the end. I know that Jesus has a plan. I know that he wants to redeem the, uh, the things that I'm, I'm living, the sin that I'm, I've accepted for so long. And I know that he can work in today, not just tomorrow. If there is any other way, then Jesus died for nothing. If there is any other way to obtain salvation, then why did Jesus come to this earth? But he's saying, listen, you need to be saved. No matter how hard you try, it's not going to accomplish anything. Verse 66, closing up here. It says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. What great words. I mean, Peter's messed it up a whole bunch of times in the Gospels. Like, he says some ridiculous things. Like, there's a transfiguration, you know, Jesus is up there. And, and then Peter's just like, oh, man, we should make some altars or something. We should start worshiping. And, like, like Peter, just keep your mouth shut. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> Peter, like, denies Jesus three times. But here, Peter gets his right. Jesus asked him, like, all right, I just offended everyone because I said, drink my blood. And they're like, oh, that's creepy. And they, everyone goes away. And says to Peter, he's like, you guys going to go away too? And you know what he says? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I love it. Why is that? Because to me, it seems, Peter had nothing left to return to. He burned all the bridges that led to hell. And that's your takeaway for tonight. You need to bridge, burn the bridges that lead to destruction. Don't give yourself an opportunity to return to that sin that so easily entraps us. A.W. Tozer once said, every man must choose his world. Every single day, you're going to have to choose, do I want to serve the flesh or do I want to serve the Lord? Do I want to walk in the spirit? The Bible says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not just about, you know, is the thing that I'm doing good. We are athletes. We're all running a race. So when you're an athlete, you're choosing food. That's not just, it seems like a good food. You're, is it part of my dieting program? And so if we take that into effect, everything that we do, we're, we all have choices in our life. And some of us get closer and closer to the line because we're like, well, I guess it's not technically sin, so I guess I can do it. It's not a matter of whether you can technically do it. It's a matter of does it draw you closer to God? And if it doesn't, you know what? You're probably not in neutral ground. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Evaluate, is this part of my training regimen? Is this going to slow me down in my race for eternal life? Uh, towards the prize, towards the goal, towards Jesus Christ. Now, this brings up a very important question. How do you know if you're going down a dangerous path? Because Peter, here, he realized, you know, he sold everything. He left his fisherman business. He couldn't go back to that. There was nothing to go back to. How do you know if you're going down a dangerous path? Well, are you burning those bridges? Are you returning to those friends alone that you know always get you into trouble? Or are you bringing a Christian friend with you to be an influence in their life? Here's some questions. I'm going to give each and every one of you this before you leave. I have some guidelines for making right decisions. You can keep it in your Bible. So whenever you're confronted with these decisions, you can ask these questions. Here's just a couple of them. Firstly, are multiple godly people in your life confronting you about the same thing? The Bible says, Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. The Bible also says in Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. He who hates correction is stupid. So if you're saying, well, I know this is right. I just have a feeling I know that God wants me to do this. Well, is everyone around you saying, hey, hey, watch it. This is bad. Stop this. This is bad. If there's like 10 people telling you that, most likely you should listen to them. Now, I'm not saying wise people being like 12 years old and like, well, my little brother's so wise and he's a Christian and he said I should just go for it. Like, this person's not a Christian, but I'm dating them. You know what? They're just, it just seems so right. And I, I no, I'm going to listen to my 12-year-old brother. No, you should listen to wiser, older people than yourself, which might mean older, too. And not just like two years older. Like, yeah, my, my friend's like 17. I know I'm like 14, and they're just so wise. I mean, they like, I just look at them. They probably got it all figured out. I'm going to trust them when they say I should go do drugs. Don't do that. 
As I said in the beginning, even good things can be bad things if they keep you from the best things. Don't ask yourself, is this good? Do I like to do it? Ask yourself, is this keeping me from running my race uh, towards Jesus? Here's another question. Are you doing it only because you don't think it's wrong? The Bible says a way seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. Are you only doing it because you're like, well, it's not wrong, so I guess I can do it. That's silly. That's dumb. You know, soon enough, it's probably going to be legalized in here that we're going to allow it to be smoking marijuana. Are you going to just, are you just not smoking marijuana just because it's illegal? Because that's a very bad re reason not to do it. You have to ask yourself, what it, is this contributing to my, my race? Am I running that with endurance? Or is this going to slow me down? And not just with marijuana, anything else. So there's biblical reasons against that, but we can't get into that. Alistair Begg has this great quote. He says, One of the key reasons for the flabbiness of our spiritual lives is that a generation of Christians is growing up with little awareness of the necessity of dealing with sin. There are sins to be rejected. These are the things that so easily entangle us. We will not all be tripped up by the same things. The source of our temptations differs according to our personalities. We must learn where our personal weaknesses lie. Once they are identified, we must be ruthless in dealing with them. I love that quote, and this is why. Because realistically, some people are allowed to do some things, and other people are not allowed to do other things. Some people can hold hands with their girlfriend, and some people just cannot. And that's just the real truth of it. The question is, is not, am I allowed to do this just because someone else can do it? The question is, is this going to glorify God? And that should be your only measurements. You should never look at someone else. You should never even look at me and say, well, Alan says that word or this word, and therefore I should be allowed to say it. Ask yourself, what does Jesus think and what would Jesus do? And base yourself on that standard, not anyone else. But we have a way of justifying ourselves. Like the minute someone says something that we think is a Christian, like, oh, I'm going to do that too. I remember being a teenager and hearing like my friends that were like 20 years old uh, being like, uh, I was like 15 and my friends were 20 years old. They said, yeah, man, we're going to go smoke cigars. I'm not saying that's evil or anything like that. But even the fact that they said it and me being 15, I never had the thought of smoking a cigar until I heard someone that I respected and thought was cool said they smoke cigars. And all of a sudden I was like, I want to do that one day. I want to give that a try. There's just something wired in our brain where we want to imitate people that we respect. So be a life that other people will want to imitate. And don't justify yourself just based on what people do. What we should do is like Pastor Lloyd shared a number of Sundays ago, whenever you're in the middle of sin, you're confronting sin, or you're like on a website or whatever, and you feel yourself about to slip, you need to take a flashlight out and shine it on that road and see the end of it. Instead of just indulging in that moment and say, well, I'm going to give myself to this person, I'm going to give myself to the, you know, pornography in this moment, shine the flashlight and look past the moment. Fantasize a little bit into the future and see where that road will lead you. And all the people you'll hurt, your family, the people will be disappointed in you, the ministry that you give up, see where that road ends. We're going to read verse 70 and 71, and then we're going to close up. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Here's what it all comes down to. I know that's a lot of text to read. This is actually the longest chapter in the whole New Testament, by the way. So it's understandable that there's a lot to go through and a lot of it that you might not understand. But here's where it all wraps up. You are what you eat. Are you partaking of the Lord? Are you indulging in spiritual things, not in fleshly things? 
Secondly, are you burning the bridges that lead to hell? But you can have the guarantee that Jesus is going to preserve you. If you have the Holy Spirit within you and you have that conviction within you, he has given you a new heart, you will make it to the end. Question is, will you put your faith in him today? There's no guarantee that you can ever come back. There's no guarantee, like if you're in sin, that you're ever going to be able to all of a sudden just make that last minute conversion or something like that. Because maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit within you. Only you can know that. I can't tell you. I can't tell you if you're saved or not. Only you know that. But if you do, you can have the confidence in knowing that Jesus won't let you be lost. He won't let you slip. He loves you. He cares about you. And if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus today, do it. What's holding you back? You don't have the guarantee of tomorrow. If he's calling you, I mean, if you're sinking in the ocean, better to put your trust in him now then try to hold on to your treasure, which is going to just sink anyway. Let's pray.